So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to look at God's word together. Father God, we thank you for this morning. Thank you all for the privilege of praise, Lord, the opportunity of worship and the chance, Lord, to be your community, your family, your church. Lord, we are children of God if we know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Saviour. And this morning, Father God, as we look at something of the book of Ezekiel, we pray, Father God, that you would challenge us as Christians, if we're Christians this morning. If we're not Christians, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us about areas of dryness and brokenness and even death areas in our life, Lord, and how you can bring life to them. Father God, bless this morning, I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have a new Prime Minister, um, which is good, um, I think. Um, we, still have, we have a lot of new Prime Ministers, don't we? we? One thing we do love is a lot, of, a lot of votes, a lot of elections, and a lot of new Prime Ministers. So we've got another one. Uh, Mr. Boris Johnson is now the, the PM, and, uh, and he uh, has started... Um, Positively, I guess. He started off with lots of promises and lots of uh, words. And, uh, and he addressed a second speech, I guess, to the nation, or the first speech he made in Parliament. Uh, was quite something uh, to behold. I don't know if you listened to it, and uh, you're wondering if I'm... I'm not, hang on, let me start again. So Boris Johnson gave a speech in Parliament. So I'm sounding like, uh, I'm, sounding like I'm secretly giving away my political views. I'm not at all. Um, so Boris addressed Parliament. And he addressed, not just Parliament, but he addressed a, bro- a broken nation... Uh, he addressed a divided nation, and he addressed a nation that is feeling like it's going downward rather than upward. No one would, would agree that the UK is anywhere near as healthy as it should be. And, uh, and these are some of the things that he said. Have we got the little uh, video? That's good. So this is what Boris promised us on his first speech to Parliament. ...is to deliver Brexit on the 31st of October for the purpose of uniting and re-energising our great United Kingdom and making this country the greatest place on earth. And when I say the greatest place on earth, I'm conscious that some may accuse me of hyperbole. But it is useful to imagine the trajectory on which we could now be embarked. By 2050, it is more than possible that the United Kingdom will be the greatest and most prosperous economy in Europe, at the centre of a new network of trade deals, which we have pioneered with the road and rail investments we are making and propose to make now, the investment in broadband and 5G. Our country will boast the most formidable transport and technological connectivity on the planet by unleashing the productive power of the whole United Kingdom, not just of London and the South East, but of every corner of England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, we will have closed forever the productivity gap and seen to it that no town is left behind ever again, no community ever forgotten. Our children and grandchildren will be living longer, happier and healthier lives. And our kingdom in 2050, thanks, by the way, to the initiative of the previous Prime Minister will no longer make any contribution whatsoever to the destruction of our precious planet brought about by carbon emissions, because we will have led the world in delivering that net zero target. We will be the home of electric vehicles, cars, even planes, powered by British-made battery technology, being developed right here, right now. We will have the free ports to revitalise our coastal communities. A bioscience sector liberated from anti-genetic modification rules, blight-resistant crops that will feed the world, and the satellite and earth observation systems that are the envy of the world. We, be, we will be the seedbed for the most exciting and most dynamic business investments on the planet. 
And everyone's getting a free unicorn as well. Um, <laughs> the, the problem Boris has is, uh, as a British man, I'm fundamentally cynical about everything anyway. But uh, there we are. So he stood up and he made lots and lots of quite wonderful promises. And if we didn't have any political bias, if we didn't have any political memory, perhaps we would say, wow, this is going to be pretty awesome going forward. But the question is, is it possible? The question is, can a nation be too broken to be fixed in quite such a dramatic way? The question is, despite the rhetoric, and it was lovely to hear someone talk up the country for a change, actually, regardless of what your views of Boris may well be. But will he do it? Many people, it's easy to make promises. Talk is cheap. Action is far harder, far costlier. But the most important question for our new prime minister isn't, will you do it? But can you do it? Have you got the ability and the power and the ideas to see all those things through? We're going to be looking this morning, not Ezekiel chapter 36, but Ezekiel chapter 37. And uh, Ezekiel chapter 37, uh, we, we come into the part of Ezekiel where the nation of Israel not dissimilar to the UK, is a nation in pieces. A nation that has been broken, that has literally been scattered to the surrounding nation, they've been taken off to exile in Babylon particularly. They're being punished by God for their sin. They've broken their covenant with God. They've put idols in the temple. They've turned their back on the king of kings that they promised to follow. And so, much like our new prime minister, as Ezekiel 36 unfolded before our eyes as Janice read it to us, full of wonderful promises, not dissimilar to what we just heard. You're going to have this, you're going to have this, that's going to happen, that's going to happen. The question, when you look at the state of Israel in the middle of the book of Ezekiel, chapter 37, is are they too far gone? Is it possible for a nation that's in exile for 70 years, that's being punished by its God for its sin, that is a shadow of its former self, is it possible when it's like a valley of dry bones to be repaired. God takes Ezekiel to a valley through a vision, I think, into a valley full of dry bones. The dry bones represent Israel. I've got a picture, a drawing of it behind. Not an actual drawing, no one was there. Um, But can you imagine standing in this valley after those promises in Ezekiel 36? God takes him to a valley and he stands there and he sees skulls and femurs and feet and hands all scattered all over this valley. This valley represents The nation of Israel, broken, dry, dead, scattered. And the question is, are they too far gone? Is it possible to bring a nation like that back from not the brink, but well past the brink? Is it possible to repair the damage when it looks like this? And so God asks him a question. In fact, I'll read uh, read it, actually. Let me read um, Ezekiel 37 to you, first of all. If you've got a Bible, it's a... The next page from chapter 36, which you just read. But this is what happened. So after making those great promises in Ezekiel 36, if I sit down, I'm stumbling. You know why that is, don't you? Because I want to say Exodus. And so every time I say Ezekiel, I want to say Exodus. And so I'm sort of going, Ezekiel. So it appears like I don't know how to speak properly. But in fact, what's happening is uh, I just don't know how to say Ezekiel without saying first Exodus. So let's just say Exodus. and, and, And if I say Exodus occasionally, I won't correct myself. But you'll know what I mean. Anyway, so this is what happens. So having made those promises to Ezekiel in chapter 36 of Ezekiel, God then takes him in verse 37 to this this vision, um, this very literal vision of a valley of dry bones. The hand of the Lord was on me, chapter 37, verse 1. He brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. 
He led me to and fro among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. And then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you, and make flesh come upon you, and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you, and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. And so I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound. And the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them. And skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. And then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come, breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain so they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath entered them. They came to life and stood on their feet, a vast army. And then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone, we are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, my people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back from the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken. I have done it, declares the Lord. And so, having made those promises in chapter 36, God takes him to this valley in this vision and he asks him a question. A question, son of man, can these bones live? Can these bones live? Can this nation live again? And I think the temptation standing in that valley, having seen the state of that nation, the temptation would have been to have said, no, there's no way, Lord, even with all your power, there's no way this nation will ever stand again. There's no way these bones can live. They're too broken, too lost, literally in a different country. It seems so unattainable. In that valley of dry bones, despair must be tempted to set in. But then the most amazing thing happens. I've just read it, but the bones begin to rattle. They begin to move. Fingers start connecting with hands and palms, and palms start connecting with wrists. And I won't burst into song, but you know how the song goes. The knee bone connects to the shoulder bone or something. can't quite remember how it goes. Anyway, hear the words. Oh, that's where the song comes from, isn't it? And those bones begin to connect together. And then amazingly, the rattling stops and then tendons appear. And all those bones start flapping around because, of course, they can suddenly move. Muscles go over the bones and then flesh and then skin. And what seemed like a pile of lifeless, hopeless bones suddenly are created into men and women. And they're there, covered, and they're just laying down people once again. How wonderful would that be to watch? Life defeats death. In this vision that Ezekiel has, a nation stands once again when it was broken and destroyed. Chapter 37 is an object lesson of the promises of chapter 36. This is what God will do to his people. He'll not just make an empty, hollow promise that he can't do. He will take them bone by bone and knit them together, every single one of them. He will gently cover them all with flesh and he will put his breath of life in them, the Holy Spirit, and stand them up 
Who gets to talk like this in the 21st century? Who gets to talk about brokenness and death and how God can knit it back together? Whoever gets to talk like that nowadays? No one. We talk about coping with your brokenness, coping with your dryness, coping with death. But Christ, God, our Lord says, I can knit you back together. I can cover you over. and I can put my breath in you and give you life where there once was death. Only in Christ can life defeat death. Restoration of a nation does not come by policies, as important as they are. Restoration of a people group or a nation come by the words of God, the word of God, and the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. Our nation, the United Kingdom, the whole of our United Kingdom, I should say, will not stand again like it once did unless the word of God is known, genuinely known. Unless God's word is believed by its people, and particularly its leaders, it will not stand again unless the words of God and his wisdom guide us in our decision-making and our policies and our promises. And unless the Holy Spirit goes into the parts of people and turns their hearts of stone to hearts of flesh through genuine faith and repentance of sin in Jesus Christ our Lord. Our nation has no hope. People have no hope apart from faith in Jesus Christ, the word of God and the power, transforming power of the Holy Spirit. And all I want to do this morning for a few minutes is just look at chapter 37 and just take a few lessons because there's lots of different characters and lots of different things we can apply to our nation, our church and ourselves. So I want to look at a few lessons uh, of this chapter, chapter 37. If you keep it open, that would be great. The first lesson is that of Israel. You see, the lesson that we learn from chapter 37 is that God, Israel's God, is faithful. If you know the book of Ezekiel very well, you'll know that actually at this point they have wholesale rejected God at every single level. The only reason they've been sent off to exile in Babylon for 70 years is because they have continually turned their back on God. They did it from day one. Right back in Exodus chapter 24, verse 7, they made a solemn promise. They entered into a covenant, an agreement with God, where he would be their God, they would be his people, a nation of priests, a light to the Gentiles and the whole world. And they said, we'll do everything you command, everything. And yet almost the next day, they built a golden calf and worshipped that at the foot of Sinai. And that has been their pattern from that very moment, right across the history, right to Ezekiel 37, of disobeying God, of turning from him, of building idols in every hill, Asherah poles, worshipping Baal when they should be worshipping God. And God has been patient and patient and patient. But the punishment for their sin has come as they agree, but they've turned their back on that promise. But the lesson from Ezekiel 36 and 37 is that our God is faithful, even when we wholesale reject him. There are always consequences for things we do, of course, but the faithfulness of God outlasts them all. In Ezekiel 34, verse 6 and 7, God talks about how compassionate he is. And even though they break their covenant with God, God keeps his side of that agreement. He holds Israel in the palm of his hand, even though they've gone off to exile. He promises over and over a remnant. Some will come back and I will rebuild you. Because he keeps his promises. Much like the prodigal son, Israel at this stage of the prodigal nation. And God remains faithful to it. And the reason that matters this morning is that this country, this isn't really a sermon about the UK, but this country has a long Christian history. And we too, as a nation, have wholesale disregarded the will of God and his plan. 
We've disregarded God's plan for things like marriage and family and money and priorities. We've made idols of too many things that we can barely keep count of them. There is an idol in every home, almost in every hand. There are idols everywhere. We have rejected God and the nation bears the scars. Yet God is faithful. The way back isn't Boris. The way back isn't the United Nations, no, isn't the European Union, should I say. The way back isn't even Brexit, but Christ. Because there is a faithfulness that comes from God that this nation can rely on. Because God doesn't just bless individuals. I believe God blesses nations. And if a nation makes God their God, I believe God will move to bless it in many areas. We're trying to fix ourselves and this nation will remain broken until it puts its trust again in our God. There's a lesson uh, from the man Ezekiel himself and the call God has on his life. God calls Ezekiel, obviously right in the beginning of the book of Ezekiel, and God gives him a call on his life. What's interesting is you read, as you read chapter 37, those bones don't move on their own. He doesn't just say, look at these bones, look how I can put them together. God says to Ezekiel, you have to speak to them. You, man, has son of man, have to prophesy the word of God to these bones. Ezekiel had a role to play, a call on his life to follow God. No matter how unpopular his message may be or how ridiculous it might seem. In chapter 2, God says very clearly to Ezekiel what he expects of him. He says, son of man, stand up on your feet, I will speak to you. And then he says, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Um, Sorry, Go to this people, sorry. I'm sending you to the Israelites, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their ancestors have been in revolt against me to this very day. The people to whom I am sending you are obstinate and stubborn. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. And whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are rebellious people, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And son of man, do not be afraid of them or their words. Do not be afraid. And he goes on. But his command, Ezekiel, was to be God's mouthpiece, to speak the truths of God to a broken, sinful, rebellious nation. His whole life was to know the call of God and to follow it, even when it was unpopular, even when it was ridiculous. He was such a great man of faith, Ezekiel, that when God asked him that question, can these bones live, he doesn't say, probably not. He says, Lord, you alone know. He replies with faith, Lord, you know. You're the one I trust for life to defeat death he responds with faith and when God says to him prophesy to these dead bones he doesn't say that's ridiculous who does that people will think I'm nuts if I do that people will think I'm crazy if I start talking to dead bones on the floor but this man of faith the call of God in his life is so strong what does he do he does exactly what God says he prophesies to those bones and then God moves so let me ask this would we Would we do that? When was the last time we did something that made us feel ridiculous for Jesus? When was the last time we did something that other people thought was crazy? When was the last time we were unpopular because we were Christians and no other reason? When was the last time we told someone about Jesus Christ? That if they put their trust in him, their sin can be forgiven and their whole eternity can be transformed. Are we prepared to look foolish for Christ? Like Ezekiel speaking to dead bones. What about work, those of you that are off to work tomorrow? Do you have a a Christian bit and a work bit? Or does one actually influence the other? 
Are you prepared to look foolish, to eat lunch on your own perhaps? Because people think you're a bit weird because you go to church and believe in God. Are you prepared to look foolish for the King of Kings? Are we the sort of Christians that pay, pray bold prayers? He prophesied to bones that they would stand up. Do we pray bold prayers? I meet so many Christians that refuse to pray. Lord, please do this. But they pray very safe, middle-of-the-road prayers. Lord, if you don't mind, if it's not too much trouble, do this. If it's all right, but if you don't do it, it's okay as well, we don't mind. When I pray for someone, particularly with things like healing, I tell God exactly what I want. I say, Lord, please heal this person. I believe you can heal them in Jesus' name. And if he doesn't, we'll deal with that later. But we must never pray safe, easy prayers. We don't need to protect God if he says no. We just need to understand if he says no. But we must be people that pray bold prayers. Will God answer a middle-of-the-road soft prayer? Like he might answer a bold, dangerous prayer. Do we pray things that seem ridiculous? but actually God may respond to and change the world over? Would we stand alone as Christians on ethical and justice issues, even if it makes us unpopular because they're not culturally acceptable? Are we ready to tell other people about Jesus Christ this week, even though we may feel silly, knowing it may change their eternity forever? We believe in a heaven and a hell, and Christ is the way you go to heaven, only the way you go to heaven. And we have the message of salvation, but we worry more for our reputation. And how ridiculous we may seem believing that than people's eternity. The UK is filled with dry bones. Our society is cracked and creaking and dry. Families fall apart. People are dry and dying around us. And we must be people that speak the very words of God. Because the message we have is unique, completely, and powerful. Uh, an example of this, I was at the Air Cadets the other day. Um, Ethan will know. Uh, we, we won't, he's not there, but... You know what air cadets are. Anyway, so I was at the air cadets. I'm the uh, chaplain of the air cadets. Um, some of you may or may not know. So that means that once a month I pop down there and do what's called a Padres hour. Um, it's more like Padres 15 minutes. Um, I feel about a thousand years old whenever I go now, um, which is a really horrible feeling. Um, and so I did a talk about um, getting older and the future and those kinds of things. You may have seen the uh, Face app. You've seen the Face app um, that people change. I, I, so we were talking about getting old. I showed them a picture of me getting old. <laughs> oh, no, that, no, that's the original. <laughs> so this is me getting old. You should pray for Andrea, because uh, can you imagine waking up to that in the morning? Um, anyway, but, but you can do more things than that. I made myself look younger as well, actually. Look at that. <laughs> Handsome? That's right. Actually, there's not really a lot of difference. Um, but you can do, I'll do one more. You can do another thing. So I made myself, this is my ideal look. Look at that. I quite like that. Anyway, uh, you can get rid of that now. <laughs> no, no, Gavin, get rid of it. Thank you. But you've got this face app, and it talks, it just shows you what you like when you get old. And, and the whole conversation with all the air cadets last Tuesday was about getting older. And, uh, and I was able to stand up, and I only spoke for a few minutes, because um, even I get bored with the sound of my own voice sometimes. And I said to them all, I said, the whole point of this is we're obsessed with getting we're obsessed with staying young, aren't we? And I says I'm 41 years old. So I'm literally bang smack in the middle of my life, hopefully. <laughs> I hope I'm not seven-eighths through it. But, um, so I'm halfway through my life, I said to them. And the truth is, from this point on, I'm just going to get more funny-looking, probably uglier, um, and I'm certainly going to creak more, and the stuff's not going to be in proportion, which is very upsetting. And, and it isn't going to go well. And I say, one day I'm going to die. So it's a really uplifting talk. And I... <laughs> 
I said to them, I said, the truth is you're told as young people that if you haven't done it all by 25, you've screwed up your entire life. You've messed up your entire life. I said, that's what you're told. That if you haven't achieved it all by 18 or 19 or 20, then everything else, really, this is just waiting to die over here, by the way. If you've got some money, then that makes it slightly easier, but you're just dying at the end of it. That's all you've got to look forward to. So you've got to live your entire life by 25. And if you don't live your entire life by 25, well, that's it. You might as well give up. This is why everyone's depressed. This is why so many of our young people, it's very more, much more complicated than this, of course. But that's why so often they struggle with the point of it all. Because we tell them this lie that unless they've achieved everything at 12, then the whole of their life is a waste of time. And I said to these kids, I said, I'm oh, halfway through. And actually, I don't really care. I don't really care that I've only got sort of 41 years left or whatever it's going to be. Because I know that my faith in Jesus Christ is bigger than everything. And I know that in the Bible, God used 80-year-olds to cross the Red Sea with the entire nation, to defeat pharaohs and his armies. And he used older people as well as younger people. And I also know that when I die, my name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And I have a place in heaven. I told him exactly like this. I didn't, I'm not making it more Christian for you because I'm the pastor. I can be fairly blunt. I say this is what Christians believe because you have to say that now, don't you? But I say, and when I die, I'm going to go to heaven and it's going to be awesome forever and ever and ever. So actually, I don't actually care and, I, and my 20s were fine. It was a right bit of a laugh. Did a lot of nice things. I'm looking forward to this bit as well because I know God can do great things even when I'm funny looking and out of proportion and older. You're not funny looking, out of proportion or older. Never mind. Um, how many, 11 years. I've been here 11 years. I need constant affirming. <laughs> Never mind. But, but my point I'm trying to make, I'm not that interesting to listen to as I'm sure you've worked out by now. Is these teenagers, as I spoke about death and getting older, were silent. And you know when people look at you like that, because you know they're taking it in, and there's something making them think. They may have been thinking about something else off of what I said, but they were taking it in, because who talks like this? Who in their lives now, in secular, post-Christian in Britain, where we no longer need God, who talks about life after death? Who talks about purpose when you're older? Who talks about all the things that we get to talk about as Christians? No one is the answer. Absolutely no one. So if we don't do it, no one else will. The world needs more Ezekiels. It needs men and women that will share the truths and the hope of Christ particularly with our young, but every age group, my age group as well, who have grown up in the 80s, late 70s, 80s, and 90s, and they have hit middle age, some of them older than me have hit middle age, and they don't like it, because they wonder what the point of it all is. They need to hear that your life's just beginning. God's got great things in store if you put it all in his hands. We need to speak the truth of God, otherwise this nation will crack and break even more. And so that's the question, isn't it? Um, and that's our next challenge, isn't it? The lesson is for Ezekiel and the call of God in his life. What's the call of God on your life? What's God calling you to do? Um, and just like Ezekiel, the challenge is then for the church to obey God when no one's watching and to speak up when they are. Where are the great social reformers of the 21st century? Like we had in this 18th, 19th century. Those men and women that changed all of society. Where are they? Where are the Christians who sacrifice their comfort and their future and their pension pots and their money and their houses for the service of the king? Where are those Christians now? Where are those who preach the gospel, modern day evangelists like Billy Graham and all those that came before? Where are they? Where are those that quit their jobs to go into ministry? 
We can point to Christians Against Poverty. We can point to Christian solidarity worldwide and stop the traffic, can't we? But I'm not talking about out there. I'm asking that question of in here. In this room. You know, it's just a two-stage process with these bones becoming alive. The first thing is they're put back together. They've got flesh and clothes on, and they're laying down, but they look alive. They've got everything that you would associate with a human being. Eyelids and hair and skin and bones and clothes. They look alive, but they're still dead until the Holy Spirit, the breath of God, comes and makes them truly living beings. Let me ask another question. Is it possible to be a Christian who looks alive but is in fact dead? Are we the walking dead? A Christian in action and word but not in heart? Is Christ our first love? Do we need to continually seek again the filling of God's Holy Spirit? Do we need to make sure that every day we desire the greater gifts for the, growth, the unity of the church and the benefit of the world? Think of our new building that we're hoping to build in a few years' time, somewhere over there, maybe, maybe something here we don't know. What will that be? Will it be a, a shell full of the possible? Or will it be a sign of the power of God? Because we're alive And we need a new building to house all that God is going to do. Or will it just be a shell of what God could do if we let him? Are we Christians in look but not heart? The UK needs more and more Ezekiels and a church that stands up and speaks the truths of God. And finally, there's lessons in this passage for us. You notice these bones are dry. The word dry is used over and over again. There are three types of dryness in this chapter. The first is the dryness of death. They're just dead, aren't they? They're scattered and they're hopeless and they're shattered. This morning, is that how you feel? Do you feel that you're just part of the walking dead almost? That there you are, you just feel scattered in your life somehow. You're just kind of barely keeping it together. Do you feel just dead and you've had it? There's another sort of uh, dryness in here, the dryness of disgrace. You'll notice that these bones haven't been buried in that culture as it would be now. There's a sense of shame. If you don't bury a body and give it a proper burial, there's a sense of disgrace. If you want to disgrace someone, you just chuck their bones on the side of the road. It would be the same now, wouldn't it? So there's, these bones aren't just dead and dry, they're disgraced. Maybe you feel disgraced this morning. Maybe things have happened to you or because of you. And you feel that sense of shame and disgrace, reputational loss. And maybe you're wondering if you can ever feel whole again. And there's a final dryness, the dryness of despair. You notice in verse 11, God says, Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Actually, chapter 37 isn't how God sees them. It's actually how they see themselves. We've had it. We're dead. We're dry. We're hopeless. This morning, maybe you feel just like that. That your self-perception is that there is no way back for you. That you are so broken. That you are so dry. You are so disgraced. That there is nothing that can happen to you anymore. Christ, hallelujah, is the chief physician. He is the one who, with the care of Psalm 139, can take the broken and put them back together. Not just in that physical, tangible sense, but emotionally, spiritually, as God the Holy Spirit enters through faith, as he refines us and challenges us, as he brings liberty to the broken, 
and that hope of the assurance that we belong and are the children of God. And so this morning, we're going to, um, Julie's going to sing a song now um, before we get to communion. But as they get themselves ready, just ending with that final point, I wonder in this room if you feel that sense of being sort of dead. You feel a bit sort of dead inside, shattered, hopeless. Maybe you feel that sense of disgrace. It doesn't matter what it is. It may be small, it may be big. Maybe years ago, maybe last week. And maybe you feel that sense of despair, wondering quite what the future holds for you, seeing yourself so negatively that you can't imagine for a second that anyone else will not agree with you. You need to hear the word of the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord who sent his son, Jesus Christ. And so as Julie sings, I'm going to ask you to do something. And, uh, and we don't do this sort of thing nearly enough, I don't think, on a Sunday morning. Because it's not just these three areas, but the whole thing about standing for our faith and being Ezekiel to our nation. If that's touched you and challenged you, I'm going to ask you to stand in a moment. And as Julie sings, just to stand for the duration of the song is a sign not to me or to you or your neighbours, but to God. An acknowledgement, perhaps, that there's been death over you. An acknowledgement that there's been some disgrace and you're sorry. An acknowledgement that you've seen yourself wrong and you're despairing and you shouldn't be. Or maybe an acknowledgement that you've hidden the gospel from your co-workers and your family because you're too frightened of what they may think of you. This is standing before God and saying, that's me this morning, Lord. And Julie's going to sing. And then we're going to pray at the end and we're going to sing again. And then we're going to take communion together. But at some point in this song, I'm going to ask, I won't say it again, but at some point when you feel ready, just stand up as an acknowledgement between you and God. Lord, I want to do it better. I want you to bring healing. I want you to bless.